The time is now. Volume 5, Episode 104. This is Employment Law Now. I am Mike Schmidt, the host of this podcast and the Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department at Cozen O'Connor. We have been talking all the time about COVID-19 and all things related to COVID-19. How many podcast episodes have I started with that exact sentence in the past 20 months? We've talked about vaccines, and we've talked about vaccine accommodations. But what I wanted to do in today's episode is really drill down a little bit more on the particular accommodation that really has been challenging to employers, I believe, the most. And that is the requests for religious-based accommodation. We know, because we've been talking about it, that there are essentially two types of accommodations that an employee can seek to a mandatory COVID-19 vaccine policy. One deals with disabilities and medical-related conditions. The other has to do with sincerely held religious beliefs or practices. That is the type of accommodation request that has really been challenging to employers lately, both because I think the number of requests on that basis that companies have been receiving, as well as the questionable statements, the questionable bases that some employees have been relying on to support their religious-based accommodation request. So in this episode, I wanted to drill down specifically on the religious-based accommodation issue and deal with two specific things. Number one, I want to talk to you about an update that the EEOC just gave earlier this week on the religious accommodation issue. And then secondly, I want to bring in one of my partners here at Cozen O'Connor to talk about, from a practical standpoint, what should employers be looking for, what should they be doing when they get requests for a religious-based accommodation to a mandatory vaccine policy, and lastly, What can an employer do if the employee is submitting one of these internet-based letters or some generalized statement that on its face does not necessarily appear to be religious in nature? Before I get to my guest, let's talk a little bit about what the EEOC just did. In our last episode, I went through some of the updates that the EEOC gave in its technical assistance on the issue of vaccines generally, and while it touched on requests for accommodation, it did speak generally about disability-related accommodations and religious-based accommodations, but now, da-da-da, now the EEOC has updated its technical assistance, its frequently asked questions, and has provided a Section L, a Section L dealing specifically with Title VII and religious-based objections 
to mandatory COVID-19 vaccine policies. And there are seven takeaways, yes, seven takeaways that I wanted to share with you from what the EEOC has just said. First, to the question of whether there is specific language that an employee must use when making a religious-based accommodation request, the answer is no. Employees do have to tell the employer, according to the EEOC, if they are requesting an exception and that request for exception is based on some conflict between the mandatory policy and the employee's sincerely held religious belief or practice, Again, it's not enough, and this is important, it's not enough to just say I have a religious belief or I have a set of religious beliefs. There has to be a connecting of the dots. There has to be a connection between the religious beliefs or practices on the one hand and on the other hand to some conflict between that religious belief or practice and having to take a vaccine as the employer is requiring. The EEOC reminds us that there are no magic words, no specific words. The employee does not necessarily have to say religious accommodation or refer, of course, to Title VII. But there has to be enough information. There has to be a connecting of those dots between I have a sincerely held religious belief or practice and that belief or practice conflicts with a mandatory vaccine policy. Takeaway number two from the EEOC's newest update, the EEOC takes the position that an employer should assume, sort of as a default, that any request for religious accommodation is in fact based on a sincerely held religious belief. That's the default. And I'm going to get into that and whether the EEO's position is sort of grounded in in real law a little bit later in this episode. But it's important to note that the EEOC does look at this as a default position, that an employer should assume that a request for religious accommodation is in fact based on sincerely held religious beliefs. It is only when an employer has an objective basis for questioning either whether the request is religious in nature or whether the belief is sincerely held, only when there is an objective basis for questioning that would an employer be justified in moving further in its analysis and asking for additional supporting information or additional facts. Of course, an employee who fails to cooperate with a reasonable request that an employer is entitled to make, does run the risk of not being able to later claim that the employer unlawfully denied an accommodation request. Takeaway number three of seven, the EEOC talks about what the word religion means. And it's important to understand, says the EEOC, that religion does not just include traditional or mainstream religious beliefs, but also non-traditional religious beliefs that may be unfamiliar to employers or managers. So simply because the employer may not be familiar with a religious belief or practice that is being raised by the employee, that in and of itself cannot mean that the employer properly assumes that the request is invalid and can be rejected. On the other hand, the EEOC does also reinforce the notion that 
we are just talking about religious-based beliefs and practices. Quote, by contrast, Title VII does not protect social, political, or economic views or personal preferences. End quote. The EEOC reminds us that we are only talking about sincerely held religious beliefs and practices. And again, I'll get into later in this episode how we sort of think about analyzing which side of the line the request falls on. Is it, in fact, a religious-based request? Or, if we're peeling the onion a little bit, it really starts to smell like it's a social, political, economic, or personal preference uh, that they are relying on. Issue or takeaway number four, the employer, again, is entitled to ask for additional information, supporting documentation if appropriate, basically asking for an explanation of how the employee's religious belief, in fact, conflicts with the mandatory vaccine requirement. One area you want to be careful about is that so many employers are trying to engage in this almost gotcha moment. Well, hey, you got this flu vaccine or you got the MMR vaccine 30 years ago. That must mean that you are not being sincere in this religious objection to our mandatory COVID-19 vaccine. The EEOC points out in its new technical assistance that even though inconsistent conduct can form the basis for a rejection of a religious-based accommodation request, it's important to understand that an individual's beliefs or degree of adherence, quote, may change over time, and therefore an employee's newly adopted or inconsistently observed practices may nevertheless be sincerely held, end quote. Could this be any more challenging? I'm going to get into very shortly how you should be thinking about as an organization these issues and how do you distinguish between the religious beliefs versus non-religious beliefs, sincerely held beliefs versus inconsistent and perhaps insincere beliefs. Takeaway number five, remember again, if an employer can demonstrate an undue hardship, that is a basis for rejecting an accommodation requirement. So, as the EEOC specifically states in its technical assistance, if an employer demonstrates that it cannot reasonably accommodate a religious belief without an undue hardship, Title VII does not require that the accommodation be provided. You can think about what kinds of costs But that's just going to be one factor. Employers are reminded that they have to assess undue hardship on a case-by-case basis. They will need to do more than say, hey, our business unit really doesn't think this is fair, or our business unit thinks that other employees, other co-workers are going to be annoyed if we give this accommodation, or I think this is going to cost us a little bit of money. Those responses are not themselves sufficient in and of themselves to constitute undue hardship. An employer can't rely on speculative hardships, but there has to be objective information. One interesting thing that the EEOC did allow for is to say that it is relevant for employers in this undue hardship analysis to consider the number of employees who are seeking an accommodation 
from the mandatory vaccine policy. That strikes me as a little bit odd in the sense of, does that mean that an employee who might be the 105th employee in line making this request might have that request rejected because he or she was not the second one in line to ask for this accommodation? It seems to me that when the EEOC is saying you've got to look at these on an individualized basis and look at the particular facts regarding the religious nature and the sincerely held belief for this particular employee, where they came in line in terms of the chronology of making their request would seem to be inconsistent with that. But nevertheless, the EEOC has said that an undue hardship analysis can include looking at how many employees have made a similar accommodation? For example, what is the cumulative cost or burden on the organization given the number of people who have made a request? Takeaway number six of seven. The question is, if an employer grants some employees a religious accommodation from the mandatory vaccine requirement because of sincerely held religious beliefs, does that mean the employer has to grant the requests of all employees who seek an accommodation? The answer to that, according to the EEOC, is no. Again, whether a particular request is religious in nature, whether a particular request is sincerely held, and then whether there is an undue hardship that would prevent reasonably accommodating that request, that is very much an individualized circumstance. Lastly, takeaway number seven, to the question, if an employer grants a religious accommodation to a particular employee, can the employer later reconsider that employee's accommodation? And the answer to that question is yes. As the EEOC states, the obligation, quote, the obligation to provide religious accommodations absent undue hardship is a continuing obligation that takes into account changing circumstances. So an employer, end quote, sorry for those keeping track of my quotes. Uh, so an employer does have the right, according to the EEOC, to discontinue a previously granted religious-based accommodation if circumstances have changed. So if, for example, it is no longer being utilized for a religious purpose or if an undue hardship is created at some later point. The takeaway from all of this, there should be a process. The employer should not be knee-jerk in their reaction. How many episodes have I said that about how many employment law issues? But here, too, the employer should not be knee-jerk in its reaction, and it should not be basing its decision on a religious-based accommodation request because of assumptions or presumptions uh, about whether this is religious, whether the employee is sincere or not. So what are some of the practical tips? What are some of the best practices how do we analyze some of the questions that the EEOC is asking us to analyze? I am glad you asked. Joining me on the podcast today is my colleague Jeff Pasick, who is a shareholder in our Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor. He is resident in our Philadelphia office, but also practices in New York and elsewhere around the country. And among other employment law issues that he counsels on and litigates regularly, 
these religious accommodations and Title VII religion issues are very much in his wheelhouse. So I am real happy to have Jeff join us today to talk a little bit further about religious-based accommodation requests. Jeff, real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Mike, it's nice to be here with you. Thank you. So let's get right into it as everyone is talking about religious accommodations and the COVID-19 vaccines. Where does this requirement that employers need to accommodate sincerely held religious beliefs and practices come from anyway? Well, there are two sources. Uh, There is a federal law source and a state or local law source. The federal law source is Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 which was amended to provide specifically additional protection for religion in the 1972 amendments. Uh, That requires an employer to accommodate sincerely held religious beliefs if the employer can do so without an undue hardship. And the test for that, as we may want to talk about in greater detail later, is anything more than de minimis is the test of the hardship. The second source of law comes from state or local fair employment practice laws. They generally track Title VII, except some states, New York in particular, imposes a much more rigorous burden on employers who uh, are in a position to deny a religious exemption only if they show a higher level of undue hardship, more akin to that that one would have to show involving a handicap or disability uh, request for accommodation. In those cases, you look at a whole variety of factors, including uh, the size of the employer, its adequacy of resources to provide the accommodation. So in New York, you're essentially looking at the state law test. The rest of the country, generally, you're looking at the federal law test. And so you just mentioned um, disability-related accommodations. Most employers, certainly pre-pandemic, have become, I think, more accustomed to dealing with accommodation requests when it comes to disabilities and medical-related conditions. How are religious accommodation requirements different, uh, or how is the process different for religious accommodation requests than disability-related accommodation requests? Well, the process is no different. Employers need to engage in the interactive process. Think of this as a game of tennis serve and return, volley, volley, volley. You go back and forth in conversation with the employee, sometimes in writing, sometimes verbally, to understand exactly what the nature of the request is. A lot of employees present requests for religious accommodation that do not exactly become clear what the nature of the conflict is or why the religion precludes whatever compliance the employer would like to have with its policy. So you have to go back and forth to make sure that it is a religious belief. And secondly, to understand alternative ways in which accommodation may be possible. The test in these cases is not that the employer is required to provide the preferred accommodation that the employee requests. The employer is the one that determines what accommodation can be made or should be made given its business circumstances. And so therefore, it's really important to know what the range of the employer's choices may be. And that depends on truly understanding what the religious commitment, belief, or practice is of the individual requesting the accommodation. So from a process standpoint, I guess just looking at this in some semblance of order for your 
um, tennis match, uh, we're going to first look at the threshold question, whether it's disability or in this case, uh, a religious-based request. We're going to look at the threshold question as to whether there is a covered disability or um, sincerely held religious belief. Then after that threshold question is either explored or assumed, and we'll get into that in a moment, we're going to go through this volley back and forth, this interactive process to see if there is a reasonable and effective accommodation that can, that can be had. Where does the undue hardship concept that you just mentioned fall in that uh, process? Well, the undue hardship can also be part of that volley back and forth. Uh, traditionally, we have seen most of the religious accommodation cases involve issues such as Sabbatarians, Seventh-day Adventists, Orthodox Jews, and other religious groups who cannot work on their Sabbath, which is Saturday. So can the employer grant a scheduling exemption from those uh, normal workplace requirements? And we would look in those kinds of uh, situations to see what the business is, what kind of hardship exists, whether we're talking about imposing the burden of working those Saturdays on other employees who might want to have that time off, or finding other ways that the employer might be able to accommodate. For example, suppose you have uh, a warehousing operation in which you have a group of casual employees who can be called into work when there is an opening on the schedule. In that context, it may be no hardship at all to grant the employee the day off on Saturday because there's a casual employee who can be brought in. On the other hand, if you don't have that list of casuals or you have a seniority system under a union contract, it may impose a great deal of hardship on other employees to force them to work on the Saturday, especially if they have used their seniority rights to bid for preferred weekend time off. Or in a non-union context, for the employee who says, wait a minute, Saturday is when I get to spend the time with my kids under my divorce agreement. And I can't give up that time because someone else wants to go and observe a religion. This time is just as important and valuable to me. So you go into a back and forth examination of what kind of hardship it would, exi would exist and on whom that hardship would exist. In this context, uh, again, using the Sabbatarian as a clear example, suppose the employer has to fill that slot with somebody on an overtime basis. Well, is that an undue hardship, paying time and a half every Saturday? Or are there other days that the Sabbatarian might be given off? Uh, well, that depends whether or not it's a 24-hour a, a operation, a seven-day-a-week operation, the possibility that the person might be assigned a double shift a different day of the week. Those are all the kinds of possibilities that you can talk about, go back and forth to see what kinds of accommodation are possible, whether they would reasonably accommodate. And in this context, reasonable means allowing the employee to practice his or her religion. It doesn't have to do with whether it seems fair. It doesn't have to do with whether it is too pricey or not. Reasonableness in this context simply means able to accommodate. But the existence of burden is a second level that you can go back and forth in the interactive process on. And that's a great point. I just want to uh, piggyback on that because you said it's not just about whether it's too pricey or whether it's uh, unfair. I'm sure there are a lot of listeners, um, particularly who deal with this on a human resources level, who have this tension between the business folks 
on the on the one hand who say this is just causing too much strife between all of the other colleagues. Uh, we can't accommodate this. We don't want to accommodate this. And you have the human resources people and maybe the in-house counsel folks saying, hey, there is a process here. There's no bright line rule, but you at least have to go through this process. And it's very important in that process for the employer to remain neutral and not take a position specifically favoring or disfavoring religion, because that itself is fraught with legal risk. And so again, before we get to the unique aspects of this pandemic, um, pre-pandemic, has there been a lot of litigation and guidance over the years on this issue, on religious accommodations in the workplace and what employers should, shouldn't do? There's been a lot of litigation on the issue. Uh, it, it doesn't usually reach the Supreme Court. Uh, a lot of it gets worked out at the district court level, but it can involve things such as the ability of an employee to wear a beard, the ability of an employee to refuse to wear pants. There are some religions that prohibit women from wearing pants because they're not allowed to dress like a man. Uh, there are a lot of different religions out there. America has hundreds and hundreds of religions, many of which are not widely known, all of which have their unique systems of belief and unique requirements for employees. And so we have to take a very respectful look at those before we reach any presumption one way or another about how to address these issues. So let's focus then on mandatory COVID-19 vaccine policies, because for those who have not uh, kept up over the years with the litigation and guidance and, and the discussion about religious accommodations, they're starting to hear and see a lot of it now. So when, when faced with a request for a religious-based accommodation and this threshold question of whether there is a sincerely held religious belief or practice to begin with, the EEOC just came out this week uh, with their updated guidance and no real surprise, but they continue to take the position uh, that an employer really should assume that a request is based on a sincerely held religious belief unless there is an objective basis to question the religious nature uh, or the employee's sincerity. So that also then suggests that there may be some situations where an employer is allowed to still question that and still engage in a threshold analysis. Assuming you agree with that, what would you say uh, as to when an employer can or when an employer should question the religious nature of the request or the sincerity of the belief and how should employers go about doing that? The first thing I would say is that the employer should be respectful because it's not up to the employer to judge the validity of the employee's claim. By definition, almost, religion involves matters of faith that are not necessarily subject to scientific or rational proof. Or objective proof. Or objective proof. Uh, and, and therefore, an employer who tries to force an employee to articulate a religious standard in such a way so that it logically follows from what the common everyday understanding is, is really trying to substitute a form of civic religion for theistic religion. And not all religions have to be theistic in their origin. Uh, I do take a little bit of issue with the EEOC in that 
I think the EEOC tends to place a burden on the employer to show a lack of sincerity. And that's not what the law says. The, the employer has a duty to accommodate if it can do so without an undue hardship, but the burden is on the employee to show that the basis of the request is religious in nature. Now, religious beliefs include theistic beliefs, that is, those that include a belief in God, as well as non-theistic beliefs, such as ethical beliefs as to what's right or wrong, as long as those are sincerely held with the strength of traditional religious beliefs. On the other hand, social, political, or economic uh, philosophies, as well as mere personal preferences, are not religious beliefs. And you need to keep that distinction in mind because a lot of the requests that we are seeing are requests that are not based on religion so much as they are based on something else. I would say to you that this presents a unique and difficult problem for employers as it does for judges. Um, the Third Circuit many years ago uh, was involved in a, in a case like this, and they said few tasks that confront a court require more circumspection than that of determining whether a particular set of ideas constitutes a religion. Judges are ill-equipped to examine the breadth and content of an avowed religion. I'd say employers are too. The Third Circuit went on to say we must avoid any predisposition toward conventional religions so that unfamiliar faiths are not branded mere secular beliefs. But nevertheless, when an individual invokes a religious belief to try to shield himself or herself from some otherwise legitimate employer regulation, the employer is required to make such uneasy differentiations. So you're not suggesting at all that there is no case where an employer can question the religious nature or the sincerity of the religious belief? Oh, absolutely not. I think there are situations in which employers really are duty-bound to do so. Because if they don't make a determination as to whether or not they believe the employee requesting the exemption is sincere, look what they're doing to other employees. Look what burden they're placing on them and look for the disruption uh, and divisiveness that that may create in the workplace. Generally, employees are respectful of other employees' religion. But if they think somebody is gaming the system by claiming a religion when it's not, then that's liable to create other problems for the employer. So if there is a case where an employer is permitted, and to your uh, expression, maybe duty-bound to engage in this threshold analysis, how does it go about doing that? I mean, in a disability case, if it is not clear what the particular condition is or why there's a need for an accommodation, you ask for a, a physician's note in some cases. Well, when it comes to religion, we know that not everybody who has religious beliefs and practices necessarily has a member of clergy or somewhere to go, and that's not the end-all, be-all for the discussion. So if you have a situation where you as an employer have some objective basis to question either the religious nature of the request or the sincerity of it, what are some things employers you know, might be able to do to look further on this threshold question? Well, let me talk a little bit about 
process and then get to substance. Employees can substantiate their stated religious belief in any form, but it will require typically explaining the nature and tenets of the religious belief when they embrace the belief, observance, or practice, as well as how the belief, observance, or practice inhibits them from receiving a COVID-19 vaccination. Now, they can include uh, a letter or documentation from a clergyman or spiritual leader. They can include a letter or documentation from another source that's knowledgeable regarding the religious belief uh, that conflicts with a vaccination requirement. And, and that source might include fellow adherents, family, friends, neighbors, managers, coworkers who may have observed past adherents or discussed it with them. Or it might be a personal statement of the sincerity and religious nature of the professed belief. Again, the issue is how does that professed belief inhibit them from receiving the COVID-19 vaccination? We get into the sincerity issue in the sense that it must satisfy two basic requirements. First, it must be sincerely held. Without some showing of the required sincerity on the part of the individual or a an organized church seeking judicial protection of its beliefs, uh, Title VII would become a limitless excuse for avoiding all unwanted employer obligations. Whether a belief is sincerely held has been stated by the United States Supreme Court to be a question of fact. So the second thing is that the belief must be religious in nature in the claimant's scheme of things. A way of life, however virtuous and admirable it may be, may not be interposed as a barrier to a reasonable regulation of an employer if it is based on purely secular considerations. To have the protection of Title VII, the claim has to be rooted in a religious belief. So therefore, it's not sufficient for someone to, I have a sincere opposition to mask wearing, for example, or getting a COVID vaccine, they have to show that their opposition is a religious belief. Um, and there are lots and lots of examples of that. Most of those cases, interestingly enough, involve employees who objected to getting a flu vaccine, many of whom did so on moral grounds or philosophical grounds, but not necessarily religious grounds. So I would give you a couple of guideposts here. First, a religion addresses fundamental and ultimate questions having to do with deep and imponderable matters. Second, a religion is comprehensive in nature. It consists of a belief system as opposed to an isolated teaching, so that an employee who comes in and says, yes, I have a sincere religious belief that I cannot get a COVID vaccine, that's not a comprehensive belief system, that is an isolated teaching. And third, um, a religion can be recognized typically by the presence of certain formal and external signs. Um, and, and those kinds of observations are really only indicia. They have to be applied with some flexibility. Um, so employers do have a lot of room to raise questions in this area, uh, even if the employees are a little bit put on the spot to try to explain what their belief system is, that's still a legitimate ground of inquiry. 
And one of the big challenges that I think employers are having, uh, because, and one of the things that you did not say in any of those sort of guideposts is the duration, the temporal aspect of this. You know, we know a lot of companies, when they're trying to ask some follow-up questions, are looking to see, well, what vaccines did the individual take in the past? What medicines have they put into their mouths, you know, as recently as last week? But I believe we also know that someone can form a sincerely held religious belief for the first time yesterday. So, you know, while it may be relevant, I guess, to the analysis, would you agree that we should not just rest on what they may or may not have done months and years before? I agree with that completely. My approach to these things is to ask the employee a series of questions, including when did you first develop this belief system? Uh, and sometimes belief systems gel over time. Uh, that's understandable. Uh, not every belief system is like Athena full grown from Zeus's forehead. Uh, this is a system situation in which employees can evolve in their religious beliefs and in their understandings of what their religious obligations are. But we can look, for example, to other things. So let me give you a few examples. Suppose the employee says, I do not want to get the COVID vaccine because it can contains fetal stem cells. Well, first of all, we know it doesn't contain fetal stem cells. So then the employee may come back and says, well, but it was developed utilizing fetal stem cells. Well, that's true for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, but it's not true for Pfizer or Moderna. So then we go to the next level of saying, okay, uh, the employee says, well, it was proven using, was proven to be effective using a line of fetal stem cells. So the question might then be, well, what other vaccines or medications will you not take? Most employees don't know that Tylenol was proven to be effective utilizing the same kind of fetal stem cell line of tissues, not to develop the product, but to prove its effectiveness. So you can look to see whether the belief system is consistent. Oh, yes, I, will, I still take Tylenol. Or no, I won't get a vaccine, but I will have my children get an MMR vaccine in order to go to school. Well, an MMR vaccine was established uh, its effectiveness in the same way. So you can look for the sincerity based upon a consistency over a wider range of behavior. Now, the employee might turn around and say, I didn't know that, but now I never would do that again. So we'll have to confront that as well. And then we look to see, well, tell me more about your belief system and let's explore whether or not you are willing to espouse this in a consistent manner so that I can treat it as sincere. So again, keeping with uh, what I think employers are facing from a practical standpoint, thanks to the seemingly perfect storm of large groups of people now wanting to object to mandatory vaccine policies, coupled with mass internet access to information and documentation, uh, employers are, are really being challenged uh, in a lot of different ways. 
in particular, employers are being presented, for example, letters from the internet that appear to be either from clergy or some religious organization or maybe a non-religious organization, um, or they're being faced with um, generalized statements from the employee, such as my body is my temple, or my God would not want me to have a vaccine against my will. First off, before I get to those specific statements, Jeff, what do we know so far about the position taken by, I'll refer to it as the mainstream religions on the COVID-19 vaccine specifically? Uh, well, I, I think that most of the mainstream religions come out squarely in favor of vaccination or not opposed to it. Let me start with the Catholic Church as an example, because some members of the Catholic Church turn down vaccines that contain cell lines derived from aborted fetal tissue based on the belief that life begins at conception and they would be morally complicit in the abortions. However, the Catholic Church has officially stated that clinically safe and effective vaccines can be used in good conscience because the use of such vaccines does not constitute formal cooperation with the abortion. And in fact, becoming vaccinated can be seen as protecting personal health and pursuing the common good. The Vatican's doctrinal office, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, Faith released a statement explaining specifically that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines were not developed from the cell lines in questions, though they may have been tested on them. And they classified these vaccines as ethically sound. And this was published with the direction specifically of the Pope. So if somebody says, I'm Catholic, and because I'm Catholic, I can't get the vaccine, I think an employer has to... Uh, respond by pointing out that that's not the teaching of the church, but give the employee the opportunity to come back and show to the contrary. Uh, now, you'll have other faiths. For example, um, uh, you would think maybe that Jehovah's Witnesses might, uh, or Christian scientists might uh, oppose the vaccine. They do not. Both faiths permit it. Uh, you can get uh, concerns uh, from people who are uh, Islamic uh, about vaccination because the main religious concern is if the vaccine contains porcine products like pork gelatin, which is a common ingredient among many vaccines. And consumption of pork is considered haram or forbidden under Islamic law. Most Islamic leaders and councils agree that the vaccination does not qualify as ingesting pork and are halal or permissible. But because Islam is not uh, a, a religion based on a creed of hierarchy the way the Catholic Church is, you might find some Muslim leaders who will say that it is prohibited for a Muslim to get the vaccine. Well, I'm not in a position and you're not in a position to say to an imam that that person is wrong in construing Islamic law. You might challenge them on the factual assumptions but if, if a Muslim employee brings in a statement from an imam saying that the person cannot get it because they were, the vaccines were uh, verified using stem cell lines, I would think you'd have to honor that. Judaism, vaccination is not just encouraged, but it's required by Jewish law as part of a mandate for members to take care of their bodies. Uh, Hinduism Practitioners believe that divinity is in all things, including plants and animals. Uh, 
Cows are considered particularly sacred, and some vaccines contain bovine gelatin, which may concern some Hindus. However, many Hindu leaders have stated that the overall benefit of keeping people healthy and safe takes precedent. But again, it's not a hierarchical faith, so you have to look specifically. Uh, take a look, for example, at uh, the Greek Orthodox. I have had uh, Greek Orthodox employees bring me letters from their local priests claiming that their religion prohibits getting the vaccine. But the Greek Orthodox Church is hierarchical. And if you follow the chain up to the archbishop level, you will find that the archbishop says that it's permissible to get the vaccine. And in fact, the archbishop has gotten the vaccine. And so therefore, um, that's a way of, of responding to, or gives an, a way of responding to a letter by saying, we don't understand this to be the position of the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese of America and give the employee the opportunity to show that our understanding is wrong. Again, it's part of the back and forth process. Maybe the employee will be able to do so. I doubt it, but uh, you at least want to keep the dialogue going so that you're not making a determination of what the religious faith calls for. And you're at least being able to show and document that you've gone through this interactive process so that if there is some uh, failure in that interactive process, as you said, it's not the employer not engaging in the process or making a determination itself, but the failure is on the part of the employee to substantiate or, or justify the religious or sincerity of this. And sometimes you can go back and forth. For example, there are a number of non-hierarchical Christian faiths in which local pastors have said it is prohibited to have this. But, uh, for example, the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission said that receiving the vaccine is morally permissible. So you might find out what part of the church do you subscribe to? Uh, if you are subscribed to Franklin Graham and his line of religious thought, well, he's got 9.6 million Facebook followers, and Graham said that Jesus would advocate for vaccination. But that doesn't mean every evangelical Christian uh, minister would say the same thing. So that's where this back and forth is very helpful. In my experience, providing information to employees that clarifies what other religious leaders that they believe in have said often results in the individual saying, I didn't know that. I'm willing now to get the vaccine. So then going back to the second part of, of my question, an employer gets, uh, uh, the, the employee provides to the company one of these letters that they see uh, on the internet or makes a statement and a request, my body is my temple, uh, my God that I believe in would not want me to take a vaccine if it was something I was against. What does an employer do when getting those letters or those sort of generalized statements? Does it just go back to what you were saying before that we need to assess sincerity with these follow-up questions? We, we need, we, in that case, you can assume sincerity but the person hasn't established that it's a religious basis because it's not that broad-based system of belief. It is a single statement of belief. And that alone doesn't make a religion. 
Yeah, this, I mean, this has been a fascinating discussion and one like so many other areas that we talk about, we could probably spend hours on. I think one of the takeaways, Jeff, is that there really is no bright line rule for a lot of this. It's about process. It's about the company engaging in the process. What would you leave as a, as a takeaway for this discussion when we're talking about employers getting religious-based accommodation requests for the mandatory COVID-19 vaccine policy? Uh, I think that an employer should separate fact from fiction. So I can't tell you how many letters I've seen where the employee says, citing 1 Corinthians, my my body is a temple, I cannot put anything into it that is not natural, or they give me a letter from a natural foods purveyor. I've seen some nice ones on the internet you can buy for $20. Uh, Those kinds of statements... uh, often assume facts that aren't facts. I've had people who send me letters saying that I cannot get this vaccine because it will alter my DNA. It won't alter your DNA. And so if your religious claim is based upon a factual misunderstanding, I think the employer has an obligation to clear up what the facts are and then deal with the statement of belief based upon what is really a statement of faith rather than a misstatement of fact. If the employee still says that I can't get this because it will change my DNA, I think the employer can rightfully reject it any more than if the employee says it will make my nose fall off. It's just not factually the case. Uh, On the other hand, uh, you have to be careful that people are sometimes using religion as a sword today to try to impose their will on others. My favorite is the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. And you can go on their website, they call themselves Pastafarians, and they will freely let you download a certification that your religion requires that you not work in the presence of non-vaccinated people. Now what are we going to do? You know, is that tongue-in-cheek or is it real? I don't know, but we have to explore it with obvious respect for the individual, get to the facts, find out what's really religious, and then evaluate whether or not it is a sincerely held religious belief that can or cannot be accommodated without undue hardship. Well, if nothing else, it's going to keep uh, a lot of people busy uh, as we continue dealing with uh, not only the vaccines, but also we're coming on to booster season, perhaps, uh, as more people are going to be recommended or required to get booster shots. So I think this analysis and this issue of religious-based accommodations uh, is not going away anytime soon. I think you're absolutely right. And we have to be prepared to revisit the issue. Because remember that a lot of times when you're dealing with these issues, views may change just the way the, the medical basis requesting an exemption may change. So the employer has to be open to reconsider its position based upon new information or change circumstances and be prepared to go through this back and forth volley as many times as needed to arrive at a sound result. My partner, Jeff Pasek, uh, here at Cozen O'Connor, thank you so much uh, for getting on the podcast today. This has been informative and definitely helpful. Thank you, Mike.
I thought that was a fascinating discussion, and I hope you did too. There is no one-size-fits-all, and like I also always say, there is no one index card that I can give you with bright line rules and do's and don'ts. There's very much an analysis that has to take place here. Three takeaways that I would leave with you. Number one, again, without wearing the robe and without telling you or guaranteeing to you how a judge will decide a particular case if it ever got to litigation, the more you as an organization can show good faith, that you acted in good faith, that you had a dialogue, that you engaged in a process with the employee, even if at the end of the day, a dispute arose or the individual employee is making X, Y, and Z allegations, if you can show that you acted in good faith, for the most part, I think you are going to be okay. These are new issues. And yes, Title VII and religious-based accommodations have been around for a long time. But as we continue to still be novel in our application of those traditional theories to this once-in-a-generation pandemic, the more you can show good faith and that you at least tried to engage in a reasonable process and dialogue with your employee, the better you are going to be in defending any later action. Number two, make sure your documentation is there. It's not just about showing that you acted in good faith, showing that you engaged in a dialogue with your employee by testimony or by oral statements. It would be great if you have contemporaneous real-time documentation of requests that have been made, of the process that you went through to analyze and discuss that request and the response you made and why. We're not talking about subjective adjectives and editorializing. We are talking about real-time contemporaneous documentation that will show the good faith nature of your actions regarding that employee. And then lastly, from a takeaway standpoint, be consistent. Yes, I understand there is a little bit of a, of a uh, distinction here and a little bit of a conflict when we say, well, this has all got to be an individualized analysis. You have to look at each set of facts. On the other hand, you also do want to look at the bigger picture and make sure that you are responding to religious-based accommodation requests with some sort of consistency and that you are certainly not granting or rejecting requests based on some protected class other than religion. Well, so much to talk about, so much to unwrap. I hope this was helpful to you uh, as we continue to navigate our way through these, uh, as I said, once-in-a-generation novel issues. Until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.